Hey everybody, welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 79. My name is Gabe Estel, I'm here with my co-hosts Dennis Levi-Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going guys? Marvelous. It's beautiful. Wonderful. Beautiful day. Glad to hear it. Excellent. Well, I hope everybody's summer is off to a nice start. Um, tonight, we've got a fun show lined up. We're going to be talking about a special year in music and baseball as well. 1967. Now, 1967 was a sea change in music, baseball, and basically most of society. This was, after all, the summer of love in the middle of a year of civil unrest. The Beatles' transformation that started a couple of years prior with Rubber Soul and Revolver culminated with what turned out to be an absolute tsunami in Sgt. Pepper's. But the late 60s were about way more than just psychedelic, psych- uh, psychedelia and the evolution of rock, though there is certainly plenty of that to discuss on any given week in 1967, you could find the Monkees, the Supremes, the Stones, Bobby Gentry, or even the Doors at the top of the charts. The top of the American League was just as varied come September. The Twins, the Red Sox, and the Tigers all had a chance to finish atop the American League on the last day of the season. But it was the Red Sox, a team that finished in next to last place each of the prior two seasons, who prevailed, led by left fielder Carl Yastrzemski. Yaz won the 1967 American League Triple Crown, leading the impossible dream Red Sox to the World Series against Bob Gibson and the St. Louis Cardinals. All right, so let's start with Carl Yastrzemski. Let's start with Yaz and the Sox. So 1967, right? Um, When you guys first told me about that we wanted to do this episode, you know, 50-year anniversary of that year, um, I... I, just you mentioned 1967 in baseball. I just think Yastrzemski. That's like my default thought for yeah. for 1967 in baseball. I was like, oh yeah, Carl Yastrzemski, right? Um, and I'd forgotten that it was the Triple Crown. I just knew he was really good that year, but yeah. oh, actually, yeah. like, kind of unprecedented good almost. Right oh, up until totally what good. Mickey was the last Triple Crown. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I and so that was a long time. Yeah, and yeah. you know it was interesting because previous to '67, Yastrzemski was kind of known for a bit of a questionable work ethic, and mm-hmm. uh, you know a lot, there was a lot of infighting in that team. And but yeah, in that in that '67 season, hitting three twenty six, forty four home runs, 120, 121 RBI. The only asterisk to the Triple Crown, I think, is the fact that he he was actually tied in home runs for the league lead in home runs uh, with Harmon Killebrew at 44 home runs. However, it's still technically the Triple Crown, and it's actually a bit more impressive than what Miggy Cabrera did in 2012 because uh, Yaz led all of baseball in those categories while Cabrera finished behind the NL's Buster Posey in batting average that year uh, by about five points. Uh, So Mm. we're picking nits here, but uh, it's still, it's still interesting. And yes, he hit his 44 home runs were 24 more than his previous career high. So he more than doubled at the age of 27. That's, you know, not totally out of the question, but um, Mm -hmm. pretty surprising nonetheless. All right, right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's impressive stuff. They they were a heck of a team then, and he was a heck of a player then. Yeah, I mean they they came close, you know, because the, the the World Series that year went down to it went to seven games. Um, 
Cardinals eventually winning. Uh, and yeah, just just great. I mean, great people on the field. I mean, obviously you had Gibson for the Cardinals, and then you also also had a guy I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, Orlando Cepeda, as well, um, who I think most people associate with the Giants, but his his um, uh, his MVP year that year, 1967, was uh, was with the Cardinals. He was with the Cardinals for three seasons. So talk a little bit about cha-cha as well. <laughs> um, but yeah. This was, uh, oh, I, yeah just to note also, I didn't realize this was just the year before, or no, might have been the year or two before they raised, or uh, lowered the mound because of Bob Gibson. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, this I mean, is when he was he was still dealing high. <laughs> dude, I, Bob Gibson, I mean, the original Madison Bumgarner, essentially. Right. Really, because yeah. Gibson came out through three complete games in the World Series, uh, twenty six strikeouts, five walks, only gave up three. Oh, he's runs. a stud. He hit he hit a home run in Game Seven. <laughs> I think in nineteen seventy he hit over three hundred something. Yeah, and he for the bro- season he had broken his leg early in the year in nineteen sixty seven too. Yeah. <laughs> he was recovering yeah. from that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. wow. we, we mentioned Killebrew, and I want to talk about Harmon Killebrew for a yeah. second. Yeah. Um, June third, nineteen sixty-seven. Harmon Killebrew hits a home run, five hundred and twenty feet, and that was measured at the time in nineteen sixty-seven. All baseball experts say that if they were using today's technology, it would have been over six hundred feet. That is insane, dude. That's like that's almost like two home runs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you. Yeah, like it's like field. two stadiums long. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was amazing when That's I was bonkers. reading about it. Wow. Yeah. The guy wow. could crush. And, man, the killer played for, like, 20 years, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you, Levi, you said 67. That It happened in 67, right? That, that, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had already been in the league, like, 14 years at yeah, that point. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he was, he came in, well, he came in the league at 18. Um, now, I actually, pop quiz. Jonathan probably, Jonathan should know this. What team did, <laughs> not until even eight seasons after 1967, what team did Carmen Killebrew wrap up his career with? Don't look. Actually, I don't know this. He, uh, he ended his career with the Royals. Wow. 1990, wow. 19, I did not know that. 1975, yep. Wow. Wow. And actually, uh, well, okay. Now he didn't. He had. A, he had still had a little bit of power. You know, he still had a little bit of pop. Fourteen homers, but he only hit one ninety nine that year. So, oh yeah. And uh, he was thirty nine, and like it was kind of like, like Phil Necro Nolan Ryan syndrome. He looked like much older than thirty nine. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Right. <laughs> Like so, grandfather in the dugout. Type. Right, right, yeah. You know, just kind of like premature gray, you know, just like, yeah, he looked he looked old. He'd been on the but, road a long time. Yeah, but uh, that would, in 67, he still would have been with the Twins. Yep. Um, and he would have finished, he actually finished second right behind Yaz for the yeah. MVP that year. Sure. Um, yeah. I this imagine, is, uh, I was thinking yeah. about the MVP voting during then and if they voted on it after the regular season but before the world series it had to always be skewed to the teams to players on teams that made the world series yeah so yeah, I, yeah right right 
guess so. Okay, I mean, because how would it not be? You would you would be influenced by that because right. there were some strong cases in the NL for MVPs. And Gabe, I'm sure you'll get to this with Cepeda, but uh, I imagine that that was often the case. It just came down to whoever won the pennant. You know, give it to a guy yeah. on that team. Right. Yeah. Right. Some interesting names on that Cardinals team that year too. You've got uh, you got Steve Carlton, a pretty young Steve Carlton, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah he was. Um, okay, it was the rookie. Oh, yeah, rookie I year, think, right? Yeah. I think or I think he was. Maybe he yeah. came in in '66. I'm not sure. He came in in six. Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. He like made an appearance, or like he pitched like 25 innings in '65. Oh, okay. 52. So 67 would have been looked like his first full season. Although uh, Tom Seaver won the NL Rookie of the Year. Uh, Rod Carew won AL Rookie of the Year. Not, yeah, a, I mean, not a bad year. No, not a bad <laughs> Right. I, I, I saw that for the Rookie of the Years in 67. I was like, damn. All right. There's there's two Hall of Famers, yeah. you know. Right? Not exactly so, like Eric Karros uh, fall, no, fall no. after that. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. It's not exactly Jerome Walton. No offense, Levi. <laughs> no, All right. God, so, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, speaking of the Cubs, there wasn't much to talk about that year. I mean, no, Santo no. was by far the Cubs' leader. He he only batted 300. But he had MVP OB, numbers. Yeah, his OPS was 906. His slugging was 512. He had 31 homers. Right. Um, you know, it's mid-60s Cubs, so it's like Santo or Banks or Williams were probably going for the top of the team. And then the the top pitcher was always Ferguson Jenkins. He was 20-13 and 13 with a 2.8 ERA. Ah, yeah. Uh, you know, also, uh, the back to that, hop to the, the Cardinals team for just a second. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, Roger Maris wrapping oh, up yeah. his career, yeah, yeah, in, in St. Louis. I yeah, forgot he, about that. Yeah, uh, he played in '67 and '68 with uh, with the Cardinals. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. ended up getting in one last World Series before. Yeah. That. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, Gabe, just to get your team in the discussion, the White Sox. You know, they were actually yeah. competing there for a while in September in the AL. Yeah, they finished about four games over 500 that year, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it looked like they kept it interesting, at least, until the end of the season. Right, Sorry, yeah, they kept it close. Plugging it. Sorry. Sure, sure. Um, um, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I, was, I, found, uh, I found a story in the uh, Sports Illustrated vault uh, from August of 67. And they were trying to, the, the White Sox were trying to psych out Yastrzemski facing the Red oh. Sox. <laughs> and uh, so I'll quickly read this paragraph. Eddie Stanky of the White Sox started the psych a few weeks ago when he called Yastrzemski an all-star from the neck down. The same day Yastrzemski <laughs> read Stanky's remark in the papers, he received a telegram that read, Stanky's trying to psych you like Red Auerbach psychs Wilt Chamberlain. Don't get mad. Signed, an angel. Then he then uh, Yastrzemski went out that day and got six hits and a doubleheader against the White Sox. He hit a home run, and as he rounded third, he looked into the dugout and tipped his hat at Stanky. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's With a name ba- like Stanky, that story had to be good. Yeah, that's uh, that's fun baseball right there. Man. That's right. That's the way it should that's be. Right. Yeah, yeah. The White Sox that year, um, uh, you know, like we had Will. Like it was, it, yeah. I mean, we we've. It was it was a relatively strong season, but not not good enough to get totally over the hump. But um, you know, we we didn't really have much in terms of like hitting. You know, like the like our of, of our starting um, starting nine, like the highest average is two forty one. Whoa! Uh, so yeah, 
Yeah, right. Uh, everybody else just basically hovers between 225 and 241. Um, and then, uh, you know, w- we had some strong pitching, though, uh, because we had um, well, we had Tommy John pitching with us. Um, uh, and then we had Wilbur Wood uh, was was a strong pitcher. Hoyt Wilhelm was still uh, was still going as well, I would think. Let me just double check. I would think that would be near the end of his career, I would guess. Sure. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, Jesus Christ. Hoyt Wilhelm pitched until he was 49. Wow. Right on. The original I, I had no right. idea. Uh, wow. Jesus. I'm kind of embarrassed to say I didn't know he pitched that long. Um, yeah. So in 67, he was 44 uh, pitching for the White Sox. Jeez. and. So yeah, five years. Uh, left. Five good years left. Right? <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, right, huh? That's insane, man. Wow. Yeah. Um, his arm had to be just like jelly. You would think by the. I know. That. Yeah, his first year was in '52. Didn't come into the league until he was 29. Whoa. Yeah, man, I know. It's it's, late. it's just yeah, 20 years and not starting until 29. It's an interesting story. Yeah. Um. And then, uh, yeah, killer, killer rookie year too with the New York Giants. He went fifteen and three, um, two forty three ERA, fourth in MVP, and looks like I think he probably won the rookie of the year. I would guess if you're finishing fourth in the MVP rating. But anyway, huh. um, yeah. So, so sixty seven. Uh, if I could switch a little bit um, to the Cardinals, obviously very stacked uh, Cardinals team uh, that year. So just kind of looking at um, at that at that lineup. Let me just pull it up here. Um, you know, you've got uh, you've got Kurt Flood putting up you know an MVP caliber season. Uh, you've got Bob Gibson. Uh, you've got Dick Hughes. Uh, you've got Lou Brock still with the Cardinals as well. Who was big um, in the World Series? Had like seven yep, stolen yep. bases. Tim McCarver. Um, we just. Trying to pull up the, uh, the so, oh regulars since yeah stats. Roger yeah. Maris that year had nine home runs, fifty five RBI, so he was modest. Yeah, right, right. You, you could make a case that year that Kurt Flood could have been you know just as valuable uh, almost as uh, as Cepeda. You know he hit three thirty five, but he played in like twenty like fifteen fewer games. Okay. So well, actually, I'd, well take that back, Cepeda. Cepeda had 25 home runs, 111 RBIs, uh, and then... I would say yeah, Lou got, Brock would maybe compete for that. Yeah, 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 Lou Brock hit 299, 21 homers, 76 RBIs, and then obviously the big stolen base total, uh, 52. And then he had over 200 hits that year, too. It's like one of the original worst trades the Cubs ever made. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just obviously Brock, Cepeda, and Flood. Having those three in your lineup I don't, doesn't really matter who the other guys right. are. You know what I mean? <laughs> with right. that, with those three, um, and uh, yeah, you know, obviously Gibson as well. But to talk about a little bit about Orlando Cepeda a little bit. Cha cha. Um, you know, kind of a, a sort of a he, he had you know a, tr- a troubled life really, um, and got through a lot of those troubles uh, through... He became a Buddhist, actually. No kidding. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, Cepeda, obviously, a great year that year. 
uh, in 67. That's that's his lone MVP season, but he is still is a Hall of Famer and uh, you know has put up put up great numbers. Um, so, you know, I I I mainly think of him as you know sort of uh, appearing on you know the, the New York Giants. That's or I'm sorry, San Francisco Giants. Excuse me, they were in San Francisco by 58. Um, so yeah, 58. He started with the with the San Francisco Giants, um, and then went over to St. Louis uh, in '66. Uh, so got him in '66. At age 28. That's at age 28. Good age to get him at. Yeah, yeah, right. He's in his prime um, at that point, and uh, you know he just obviously just started just firing on all cylinders uh in 67 is his next year um and the you know cardinals just really just just took control of the nl at that point uh so he ended up hitting 325 uh had 21 game winning hits damn so that's that's a difference maker right there you know Uh, i don't know what calculated his war was but um uh it was 6.8 Six point okay. eight that year, yeah. All right. yeah. yeah, it was in the top. It was in like the top three or four, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, um, yeah, yeah. So he was a unanimous choice for MVP, which, um, uh, and also uh, first Latin player to win the home run RBI titles. So, uh, uh, wow. Puerto, uh, Puerto Rican player, and um, you know, so his, and then you know, he was with St. Louis until '68. And then uh, his later career, he was with the Braves when Hank Aaron, you know, near the end, when Hank Aaron uh, was um, near the end of his career with the Braves. And then he actually got traded to Oakland for another former MVP and Denny McClain. Denny McClain won the following year in 68. Uh, So, yeah, big, big, big trade there, um, at least at least in terms of names. Uh, although uh, Cepeda's knee at that point, by the time he reached Oakland in the early 70s, you know, was really starting to bother him. Um, so he actually was the first player to sign a contract to exclusively play DH. Um, so this was, you know, the advent of the DH. This would have been like 73. Sure. Um, and, you know, he ended up uh, actually, you know, for Oakland, putting together a pretty strong campaign uh, in 73. With 289, 20 homers, 86 RBIs. Um, so yeah, you know he his the, even though the knee was bothering, yeah. yeah, the knee was bothering him. Um, the the end of the career, uh, you know, it was his career was starting to to wane. Um, and by '74, I believe it was pretty much all over. Um, in yeah, in Kansas What's City, in Kansas, in Kansas City, City. <laughs> in KC, yeah, right, in KC, yep. Um, so, so yeah, uh, so yeah, good, but you know, his life really takes an interesting turn, um, in like the early seventies. Um, for one, he was always a stoner. All right. So he pretty much said he was smoking weed still while he was in his prime in since 65, he said, Hmm. um, and just, just kind of reading here, um, he, uh, after he got out of baseball, would have been like seventy-five. Um, he went to um, he went to Puerto Rico to to like host like a like a baseball clinic. Obviously, he's you know he's pretty much the premier one of the premier Puerto Rican players. So he's you know legendary status down there at that point. Still is, but 
especially then. And um, he hooked up with some dudes. I don't know the whole story, but I kind of want to read the book, a, a book about Cha-Cha now. And then also I think his life would make a pretty good movie. <laughs> um, he, uh, he met these drug dealers down there and they had asked him to take um, five pounds of grass in his bags uh, at the airport. I don't know mm-hmm. if the logic was, you know, he's a celebrity, especially in Puerto Rico. He's not going to get, you know, nobody's going to hassle him, whatever. Um, but yeah, he got pinched. Um, and um, he ended up then, um, uh, you know, got arrested, obviously. And uh, then he got arrested a second time while he was still on trial for, for holding a gun to a dude. Um, and then, and then still some more drug charges, like in the late seventies, basically like, you know, everything was, um, uh, he lived in a halfway house in Philadelphia for a little while in the late seventies. Wow. Um, yeah. Everything got taken away. Yeah. Right. So like the, the late seventies for him were, were some pretty dark years. Um, and then he started to turn it around in the early eighties. He's actually the, uh, was a scout for the White Sox for a little while. Um, and he converted to Buddhism, um, in the early eighties. And, you know, he, he cites that as, you know, his, his transformation really. Um, and, uh, yeah, since then he's been like just really involved in a lot of charity work. I mean, it was a real cliche, but it's a real about face, you know? I mean, he, uh, he credits the Buddhism with, uh, you know, with, with turning his life around. And I, I like to hear it, you know, because, um, you know, you uh, obviously, uh, yeah, I want the guy to be as, you know, the best Orlando Cepeda he can be, of course. But, um, uh, yeah, he seems like just a little bit cut from a different cloth, you know. Hmm. Um, and uh, I I don't know if a movie has ever been in the works, but uh, it sounds like some, you know, some some very cinematic yeah. things went on in the 70s. Sure. And then and then with his conversion in the 80s. So, uh so yeah, Cha Cha um, led, a, you know, as has led, he's still alive, uh, has led a, a pretty, uh, a pretty fascinating life. So no kidding, wow, yeah, right on, yeah, yep, yep. got in the no got idea. in the hall, of, yeah, got in the hall of fame in the uh, mid nineties. So right, it yeah. looks like uh, nineteen ninety nine, actually late nineties. Excuse me, he got in. So oops. Or am I right about that? Yeah. Uh, he's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Sometime in the... Oh, yeah. 99. 99. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Just a, a great player with a fascinating life. 11-time All-Star. Um, you know, two-time NL RBI leader. So, uh, yeah. He did some damage. Definitely. I do have one more point about the Red Sox that year. That coming in... Uh, you know, I said that well, you said in the opening that, that they finished ninth out of ten teams uh, the previous two seasons. They finished under five hundred for eight consecutive seasons going into uh, 1967, and that's hence the impossible dream was nobody expected this team to really compete because they came nowhere close. So eight losing seasons going into 1967. Since then, the Boston Red Sox have had nine losing seasons <laughs> from 1967 to present. Uh, so it really was a seat change for that franchise, got them turned around and competing somewhat regularly. You know, they went to the World Series in 75 and 86, of course, where they lost. But 
uh, they were always uh, at least competing uh, for the most uh-huh. part. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So uh, so yeah, yeah, it really was a sea change. Cool. Well, yeah, there was a big sea change in music in 1967 as well. Absolutely. Um, probably 1967 laying the groundwork for uh, most of the albums that all of us cherish, <laughs> you know? I mean, obviously, you know... You 66 a- had a little... Like, there, you know, there's some records in 66 that are pretty amazing, too. But, like, 67 just seemed like they opened the floodgates. Yeah, yeah, it was... It was uh, it's a cliche, but you know, a real turning point. Um, so yeah, so 67, um, talk about, we'll share some albums that we, that we like a lot from that year. Um, I, you know, I've, I've got a list that's kind of like the non Sergeant Peppers list. Um, Sergeant you know, Peppers that, is assumed in this conversation. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, I, I don't, I don't think, right I don't think we, I don't think we need to, to really dissect. That I was going to say, much. yeah, Sergeant Peppers, like maybe the door self-titled, are you experienced? You know, the, they're, they're great records. Everybody knows this, but they've those have all been covered pretty extensively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I, you, I'll start, I guess. I, uh, if you don't mind, I'll um, an, an album that this is something that an album that's um, I've been drawn to more recently. I wouldn't say I probably got into it until like maybe like within the last five years. Um, I'd always known it for the artwork on the cover. And like I'd always people heard people say like, oh, that one's that that album's important, you know, like um, even though the band didn't uh, didn't really reach the heights that maybe they should have. Um, they definitely didn't. And that's uh, the album's Forever Changes by Love. Um, obviously, if you if you look at the album cover, it's got a, a, a you know, imagery that's very evocative of 1967, uh, very psychedelic looking, but yet kind of minimal uh, album cover. Um and th- this album, um, man, it's uh, it's so well recorded and it's so layered, uh, and it is psychedelic, um, but not as much as some of those albums that Levi had just mentioned. You know, like like Are You Experienced is you know really that is that is the start of that era, uh, and the Doors to a certain degree as well, and. And Sergeant Pepper's too. Um, this album almost has a little bit of a. Uh, it's it's it's. I I wouldn't say it's as psychedelic as some of those others that we just mentioned. Um, it's almost got like um, you know there's there's horns on it as well, um, and it's uh, it's just a really gorgeous record. And I think with one of the best opening tracks of all time um, in Alone Again or. And uh, just, just start to finish, just just a just just a phenomenal record, and uh, unfortunately, really like the only feather in in Love's cap. Um, you know, if if anybody's ever read up about um, about the, the the lead singer um, uh, for uh, Arthur Lee uh, for Love, you know, guy led a pretty troubled life. Um, you know, just in prison drugs um you know all those kind of succumbed to all those cliches unfortunately and then died about uh, about 12 years or 11 years ago um but uh, you know this this album it's just it, it was probably one of the the albums over the last five years or so that's just really grabbed me and i think that uh it uh it's it, 
it's I think almost as important as some of those like the other iconic albums that came out uh, that year. And I mean, it's it's a musician's album. I mean, obviously, a lot of people that whose music I admire like that record a lot. Uh, I know I think like Noel Gallagher, it's like one of his favorite records. I, I, I know. Jim Morrison always said Love was his favorite band. Wow. OK. OK, cool. Um, yeah. So uh, it's it's just a really, a really, a really great, uh, just phenomenal album. Um, uh, so yeah, pick it up, you know. Well, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if, if anybody out there's never heard of it, it's definitely, you know, it, it was just one of those cases where there were so many great records out that year. And yeah, it gets it overshadowed. Just, it got overlooked. Yeah, uh, there's so many iconic records that came out that year. I mean, we're not even going to have time to talk about all of them tonight. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's it, it's obviously very critically acclaimed, but it's. Its status didn't, you know, it, it grew after, you know, it, yeah. years, years after. It's, uh, it, I would it really, say it was maybe like four or five years ahead of its time. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. Absolutely. At least, you know, in 73, it might have been huge. Or like yeah. Yeah. Right. 72. Yep. So, uh, so that, that's, that, gosh, you know, uh, I, it's, it's one of my favorite records of that year. And, um, I, I feel like I get something new, you know, out of it every time I listen to it. Right so that's one. that's that's my choice for 67 I, a couple others i just want to mention briefly um uh i i really like dolly parton's first record from that year uh hello uh i'm dolly parton um really good production values on it um and uh you know 1967 um country was the changes in society weren't necessarily hitting country music as quickly as they were rock and roll but um, I think that for Dolly, you know, it's uh, it's an important album for a female artist. You know, uh, if you listen to some of the songs on there, you know, they're I, I think they're much more assertive, you know, um, than uh, than some other uh, country music female singers from that era. Opening with a song called uh, "Dumb Blonde" is so certainly... a song called "Dumb Blonde." Yeah, uh, <laughs> gets you, you there. Know, and, yeah, and uh, it's it's really smart. And um, uh, it's, it's it's an important record, I think. I, I, I don't often, you know, like when, when we talk about like, you know, um, uh, popular albums by uh, female artists, I, I don't know how often that one's brought up. You know, I mean, I'm, I, maybe because it's a country record, but, you know, people, yeah. always, people always mention like, you know, Patti Smith and and um you know the runaways and uh just, you know, there's there's janice joplin and there's you know, there's a you know, there's others i'm i'm forgetting but uh i think that one deserves to be mentioned particularly because it's in a genre where i think what she was saying was a bigger assertion and a more uh, a, a big a, a a greater challenge to the establishment than you know, it's harder to say those things in country. I think, right. you know, than, yeah, than, to her than audience, it, sure, yeah, than it than it would be, you know, for somebody like Patty Smith. To say yeah, Patty Smith is speaking of the choir, right? Pretty right. much. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. ten years later, you know, yeah. but still. So yeah, that one, and then also um, this is one of my favorite album covers because uh, I think you know she's so striking looking. Um, uh, Miles Davis' girlfriend at the time, and I think it was, I think they got married for a little while. Cicely Tyson. 
on the cover of 1967's uh, Sorcerer record. Uh, it's one of my favorite album covers and also the the music to, to back it up. Um, this is like kind of an, a, a transition period for Miles. You know, like it, it, it even though it's 67, it still sounds, because uh, I think there's a song on there that was recorded a few years earlier. It still sounds like the early 60s kind of Miles, but it's a little more aggressive. So, you know, like, two years later for that guy, like when Bitches Brew yeah. come out, yeah. like, I mean, things changed dramatically, you know, yeah. the whole fusion he, era oh, started. Yeah. For him. It became, like they said, it became funkier. This, I, I like this record a lot because it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a bridge between, between those two eras of miles. And also he put out another great record that year, miles smiles, uh, as yeah. well. So really prolific time period for that guy. And, um, you know the the changes afoot. I, I I always think it's exciting to listen to the record before like the big one. You know, like or the, the the big one that changed. You know, like we mentioned Sergeant Pepper's earlier. Um, the Sergeant Pepper's iconic status kind of makes me appreciate Revolver a little bit more because I think it's it's totally like the groundwork for it. You know, lays the groundwork for Sergeant Pepper's. And I would I would argue that's that's the case with um, the two records that Miles put out that year. Miles Smiles and um, and sorcerer they're you know kind of one foot in the early 60s and sort of slowly inching towards the uh the late 60s so. well yeah you, you talked about dolly parton being you know a woman speaking her mind also uh, we had bobby gentry that year mm-hmm. with the ode to billy joe record which yeah. came out of kind of nowhere yeah and, um, yeah just the uh you know at the at, just with everything all the societal economic you know, war, whatever issues going on, that song on the radio seems like kind of, you know, like a, like an escape almost, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like laid back Southern drawl type kind of almost is almost like a blueprint for that lazy country funk that would mm-hmm. come later in a few years. Yeah. And like, it just, yeah, the, the, the sound of that song is amazing and the whole record's good the song mississippi delta is really good off that album mm-hmm. um the grateful dead i have to mention came out with their first record that year on warner brothers obviously mm-hmm. it didn't sell well like most of their studio records but mm-hmm. um th- that was monumental one of my favorite though albums from that year is by west montgomery and mm-hmm. it's his a day in the life and uh he obviously does the beatles song and there's right. some other covers on there as well. If you've never heard it, it's a really great album. Um, the Bar Case, Soulfinger. I, I gotta mention that. You know, one of the first true kick butt funk records that I ever heard. And uh, another uh, Buffalo Springfield, self titled, was an important record that year, along with the Young Bloods, self titled. Two two good bands um, coming out, and then. Uh, a record I've recently gotten into that I uh, I happened to find like a mint condition copy of, which got me into it, and it just sounds so great. Um, it's Jackie Wilson's Higher and Higher. Ah, oh, yeah, nice. And uh, it uh, the whole album's great, but that song is just like pure '60s like soul perfection. Was Jackie Wilson like on Motown, or would that have been like? This like... is on Brunswick. Okay, all right, yeah. Okay. I believe. I could yeah. double check that. But yeah. Um 
so yeah, those are my album highlights of the year. I, you know, the 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 Bobby Gentry one. Uh, I love the story of it too, Levi. You know, like just oh, the. Yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 like Southern Gothic. You know what I mean? It's like. It's like it's like you know, like Carson McCullers could have well, written no, the story. Yeah, well, you know yeah, what I no, mean? Yeah, I mean, it's such or, a good tale. You know? Yeah, yeah. Didn't yeah, they write a know, book it, after it about it? Betsy well, said like there's the kill, a book yeah. written about the song. Yeah, I mean, it's like oh, is there? You know, okay. Yeah. No, I don't know if there is, but like, it's almost like, like they developed it after like the southern... song was written. I oh, I don't okay. know that. That one of the interesting things is you know everybody. You know, a large group of listeners, obviously, when it came out and when people hear it today, you know, people are automatically like, what are they throwing off the bridge? Why did Billy Joe die? Like, what what is going on? But like she always stated in interviews that she wanted people to think about the whole indifference of it all. Okay, And, and, and how it's like, you know, like the culture of like. People just talking about people's lives and and deaths and just over dinner and could you pass the peas or the biscuits? Right. You know? Like yeah. sort of small town stories. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and her story is like she entertained and stuff up until like the late seventies, and then basically vanished. Hmm. Like she, I mean, I'm she's passed away now, but yeah, she didn't perform at all. Like after the late seventies. Or, or might have been like 1980 could have been her last performance, something like that. But uh, yeah, she just kind of disappeared and didn't want really anything to do with that lifestyle. Mm. Hmm. Good choices, man. Yeah, I'll spin that album tomorrow. Yeah, that the West Montgomery is a great morning record too. Yeah, actually, I, I think uh, I think I own that, and that tells you the impact of Sgt. Pepper's. That same year, there was an album released with the title of one, using the title of one of the songs on that album, and it's one of his <laughs> seminal albums. Right, it's one right. of West Montgomery's like most well-known records. Yeah, it's a yeah. hell of an impact. Yeah. So the two Stones records that came out that year would have been, you know, their their blatant attempt at a Sgt. Pepper's and her Satanic Majesty. I was going to bring up Satanic Majesty. Um, so, oh, sorry. All right. I'm no, that's okay. That's okay. But, Go ahead. Go but ahead. I think they also they also put out. Um... Oh shit! I should know this. Beggar's Banquet would have been sixty-eight. It's sixty-eight. Um, God, uh, it's it's before her Satanic Majesty's request. I between the buttons. I, between the buttons. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. You know, that's uh, that's 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 a good record. So, 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 but to segue to their Satanic Majesty's request, uh, that you know, it, the album at best is uneven, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah um, I mean, it's, it's got some cuts on there that are pretty solid, but. But the well, rest she's a rainbow's it, great. Yeah, yeah, and and I think, uh, you know, some of the, uh, uh, you know, sing this all together is not bad. Uh, two thousand man and two thousand light years from home. By the way, Cornish setlist FM two thousand light years from home is the only song on that album that they've ever played live. Wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's hard to get past. First of all, the heavy handedness of the title and the cover. Yeah, right. especially yeah. as it relates to Sgt. Pepper's, and not that the title is similar to Sgt. Pepper's, but it kind of has this similar feel. It does, yeah, yeah. It, and like it's... embarrassingly so. <laughs> yeah, you know that's just not them being them. You know, right. it's right. it's um, 
they were just trying to sell records that year, basically. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure there was there was a push for it. You know, I'm sure industry people were like, you know. Well, and that was the start of Brian Jones, like hard partying and like yeah. contributing, like he had been on, like he was the right. driving force behind all the early blues influence mm-hmm. and stuff. Right, right. Um, yeah, that was it. Was it was a bit of a as much as I love the Stones, a bit of a contrived affair. That one. I mean, yeah, um, some of it's just like throwaway noodling. Really, yeah, at best. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, there's a few cuts on there that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody remembers the gimmick cover, though. It was like a sport flick baseball card. Yeah, right. The first yeah. sport flick. Yeah. Yeah. The originals were the first pressing. L- lenticular, yeah. is that what they call it? I, I believe so. Yeah. No, you know, no one, as far as debut records that year, you, you guys mentioned The Doors. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Levi, are you done with all your choices? I'm yes, sorry. Yes. Did you? I, I didn't mean to. And then Jonathan. Sorry, I, I think I, I interrupted here. Um, but, uh, yeah, The Doors was a debut record. Also, uh, Piper, at the, um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn came out that year, too. Mm-hmm. 67. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's some great uh, YouTube. There's a great, uh, I shouldn't say great, it's an interesting uh, 1967 Pink Floyd video on YouTube uh, that's just like 15 minutes of interstellar overdrive uh, that I mean it depends how long it'll hold your attention it held mine for about five and a half minutes until I changed it but uh, a lot of go-go boots and dresses and and dancing wildly to a beat that isn't quite there but uh, yeah 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 it's a it's a fun fun album was for Sam yeah I'll um uh, has it no one has anyone mentioned vanilla fudge yet no 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 oh well that's 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 a kick-ass record man it i is. mean that's that's uh i mean grant the bulk of its covers you know mm-hmm. but um what a take on those covers man for uh, sure that's that that's another record that just over the last you know few years i've gotten into quite a bit and it's it's yeah it's it's great the um, unsung hero i think of that record is the backup vocals yeah, the harmonies, yeah. the, the yeah. vocals on that record are great. Yeah, they are. Yeah, good, good, good point. Um, and then, um, you know, just Carmen's just such a such a beast on the drums. So it seemed like um, for most of their career, or the the band's lifespan, it was it's mostly covers, right? For that, for Vanilla yeah, Fudge. Yeah, yeah, it is. They they had a a good take on uh, a covers. Another another band that was really uh, skilled at covers that I I don't say I confuse them with Vanilla Fudge, but they're you could see how one would. Um, their first record I don't think came out until the following year is Blue Cheer, as well. Um, you know they've they they've, they kind of remind me of Vanilla Fudge, but their their first record came out in '68. So another another episode. Um, speaking of debuts, I was most taken by uh, the Procol Harum uh, uh, debut yeah, from '67, yeah. uh, self-titled, so which mm-hmm. apparently came out after uh, the big single. Um, yeah, but the the British version didn't actually have the Knights of White Satin on the album. The American version does. Mm. And um, was Robin Trower on that? Was he with them then? Let me let me check. I he was either with them then or very. He came at like the after. tour. Like he might have not played on the record, but played on the tour or something like that. I think right because he was with them a long time. Uh, he is, uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, he he is a personnel on that album. I don't think he played on, uh, or I'm sorry, I said nice when I said a wider shade of pale. I don't yeah, think yeah. he played on a wider shade of pale. Um, but yeah, he plays on that album. But yeah, that that, that album talk about sounding like good production. Uh, that album sounds really fresh and like it could have mm-hmm. been recorded yesterday. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um. Also, you know, another good one, um, you mentioned Nice and White Satin, Days of Future Past as well came out that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Great year for music. Yeah, Jesus, gosh, we're going all night. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we haven't haven't even touched on, like, there's probably some killer Buck Owens records that year. Yeah, there's killer country. I mean, this is... Supremes put out a a couple good records that year, you know. Um, Even the Monkees started writing their own music and... And, right. Uh, put out a couple records. Yeah. 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 Headquarters came out. Yeah. Don't don't so, underestimate Michael Nesmith. He can he can I write agree. some tunes. Uh, one of my favorite Monkey songs is actually a B side or a, I I had never heard it until they did the remaster of Headquarters and it's on there as like an extra track because I'm pretty positive it's not on my vinyl. It's called All Your Toys or All My Toys or something like that. Okay. It's my favorite Monkey song. It's great. Or all. Just like all your toys, or something like that, is the okay. song. But yeah, it's a great monkeys tune, and it's interesting because you can immediately tell it's not studio musicians playing the instruments. Mm. <laughs> like not not that I'm saying there's like tons of off notes, but you could just tell it's. Looser. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it doesn't sound like the Beach Boys is backing band playing for the monkeys, which it right. basically was up until then. Right. <laughs> So would you guys uh, pick any any uh, contemporary bands to cover any of these songs from 67? Yeah, um, yeah I got one. Uh, uh, yeah, go for it. I'll do, uh, I'll take um, for Love Forever Changes, just the whole record. I'll take my morning jacket doing it. Hmm, nice. The whole, the whole record? Yeah, do the whole thing. Nice. Yeah, they, yeah. they could do it. They could pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my choice. Right on. You go, you go next, Jonathan. Okay. While I'm I'm looking up to try and verify some facts here. Okay. I uh, you know I was thinking, and I I just did a single track here, although the band's capable of it. But the Flaming Lips have never covered Traffic, and oh. uh, in '67, uh, Traffic released uh, Mr. Fantasy. That's uh, just what I was looking up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, that's '67. Okay, I thought it was '68. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, I, I believe it's '67. It is. Oh, yeah, I could right. be. Cool. I could stand corrected, just like Purple Heron didn't perform "Nights in White Satin." Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the funny thing with this, it's the opposite of Robin Trower, where Dave Mason played on this record and then left the band basically ah. right after it. Mm. He was like in and out of traffic two or three times. Yeah, because he plays on Welcome to the Canteen. That was like his last stint. In Some would say he was weaving in and out of traffic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> thank Rim you. Shot. Thank you. Podcast right. over. We're done. Last episode. <laughs> Rim shot. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I would take. I want to hear the, f- the Flaming Lips take on Colored Rain. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. To, to hear uh, to hear Wayne Coyne just barely hit the notes on uh, on Colored Rain. Yeah, that would be good. Um, and then actually, uh, Levi, you mentioned Buffalo Springfield. Uh, Buffalo Springfield Springfield also released again that year. Correct, sixty seven. 
Oh, they put out two albums that year. Yeah. Um, and On Again is a an amazing tune called Broken Arrow to close out the record. Uh, like six minutes, it's you know a pastiche of different uh, movements. And actually, I don't have to wish this band has done it because they have done it and they do it excellently. Wilco covering Broken Arrow off of Buffalo Springfield. It's on YouTube. Oh, nice. Check it out. They execute it meticulously. Highly oh. suggest it. Nice. Nice. Yeah, well, shoot. Okay, I'm going to... These are all... This is just off the top of my head. Um, it would be cool to see... Um, I'm trying to think who... Who has horns nowadays? I guess Tedeschi Trucks has horns nowadays. Um, what other bands have big horn sections? Oh, my morning jacket sometimes have, has horns. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what I was thinking. You know, like yeah. I, they. It, it'd be I, cool there, to see there somebody have to be do, some flexibility there. But. Yeah, like it would be cool to have, to see. Like I don't know. I guess Tedeschi Trucks do like Soul Finger or. Um, it would be cool to hear. I don't know. Um, Somebody do Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion by the Dead. I I always thought that was a good song, song off the first record. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't even know who, though. I don't listen to new music. <laughs> <laughs> new music bear, new music finds me, and I just grasp at it and try and grab it. It's like how I found out about that Marty Stewart. I had never known. Um, you're, a man, you're a man of another time, Levi. Well, <laughs> and anybody then, want to hear cover So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star that the Birds put out that year? Right. Yeah, that would be a good one. Petty's done it, obviously. I was going to say, yeah. What what year? What yesterday? What what Birds album came out in '67? Younger than yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah yesterday. Yeah. Right. My back pages is on there as well. Uh, cool. Oh, uh, so we, nobody. Well, I, it's it's an iconic one, but nobody mentioned surreal, surrealistic right. pillow. Yeah, Jefferson right? Airplane. Didn't. Right. Yeah. They put out yeah. two albums that year too. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a pretty iconic album. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, you want to show right. some cards? Let's show our cards, guys. Let's wrap it up here. Show our cards. Um, yeah. So thanks for dipping in 1967 with us. Uh, on that note. Some baseball cards. Uh, not a lot of 1967 cards among our collections, so yeah. we're actually just going to be... Jonathan, you can superimpose these on the screen, I would assume, or something. I'm going to show them uh, from my phone. Okay, show them from the phone. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, go for it, man. Go ahead and start. All right, um, I'll start uh, I'll start with... Actually, I'm going to cheat and do two. Uh, one yeah. is a Chicago Cub. Sorry, Levi. Uh, and this was a uh, like a seven year pitcher. He had like I don't know. He had like a thirteen and thirty career win loss record. <laughs> Arnold Early, uh, if you can see him there, <laughs> he's got a killer set of shades on. Well, he's going to the shooting range. It looks like yeah, right. <laughs> that I, I love that. The, yeah, he's got these yellow shades on, and that this was a time when they could just match the Cubs letters to be whatever color that they wanted like whatever color is most yeah. predominant in the in the photo and so they just chose yellow because yeah the cubs have never been yellow but they can do that then uh arnold early really stuck out there um but yeah he's definitely going the shooting range and then this other one uh bob bull pitcher for the phillies uh i saw it and 
I had to include it because oh, God, <laughs> it, it reminded me so much of Ray Donovan. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's a relation a relation there. Bob Bull, he lives right here, dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't fuck with Bob Bull. Um, no. you, you don't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be the, uh, uh, the the coach that has to take him out of a ball game. Well, yeah, no. if he's, no. he was a pitcher, so he's the pitcher. If he hit you with one, you just went, you trotted to first base. Put your, <laughs> yeah. Put your head down. And... <laughs> but yeah, Ray Donovan's the guy, father. Apparently. The guy that took Bob Bull's daughter to prom. He's he's never been seen. <laughs> he just disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> serious circumstances. <laughs> Oh man, uh, so uh, so yeah, th- those are my two cards. Uh, Levi, you want to intro your card here, and I'll show it. Yeah, my card is actually a card I have in my giant box of baseball cards that's in storage. But um, it's a nineteen sixty seven tops Carl Yastrzemski, and it's the year he Ooh, was uh, it was an MVP or tri- the Triple Crown. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, been in my collection a long time uh, since the late nineties. It was one of the first cards I ever owned that I put in a screw down holder. Nice. So you knew it, you knew it was fancy because there's a screw in the holder. Yeah, I've got my Carlson <laughs> Fisk rookie card. As one. I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I think I have this as a 1987 uh, like yeah. turn back the pages card. Yeah, I had. Oh both. Yeah. yeah, I remember yeah. the turn back the pages yeah. cards. Yeah, good looking yeah. cards. Um, mine here. Um, I, you know, let's let's be honest. Nobody ever got excited when we were a kid when we got a checklist in the cards, right? <laughs> right? You're like, God oh, damn you, it! A yeah, checklist. you got screwed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Till the advent of Upper Deck, because their right. checklists were those Vernon Wells ones. Those kick butt. This is true. Yes. Yeah. Oh, but, the, yes. the art. All the art tops art. checklists. Yes. Yes. Tops checklists were literally like front back checklists. Yeah. It was right. just like pack filler. You're like, great. Yeah, and this is the same way, um, but I like the fact that they put at least Roberto Clemente's head on the checklist. <laughs> right. Oh, it scooted right? over a little bit. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so at least, like, I, I don't know, that makes him look a little bit better, chips, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. At least it's got a dude's face on it, you know, it's just a head. <laughs> put Clemente so, on there. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So. I like that. Mm-hmm. The thing about those yeah, checklists, that, though, is that. You know, you would use that like a big pin on it. On the front, it was glossy; it wouldn't work as well. On the back, it worked fine because it was yeah, it wasn't glossy. The fronts would smear, right? right yeah, right. Yeah, like you would. You'd really have to hammer down on it to get the yeah. ink to come out on the front. Well, so good stuff. Anywho, uh, well, thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Uh, I want to remind everybody that you can listen to every single episode of Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. At rockchew.com, you can also find us on iTunes, all major podcasting applications. Uh, Don't even have to download it. You can stream it. Um, So uh, tell us how you chew, and uh, uh, let let all your friends know as well. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram and the Twitter at rockinchew. That's N as in... Um, let's say uh, in as in um, I don't know I don't know um, sorry, Coming I, up, I, I've got like yeah. no song titles here uh, yeah. no, no, no face no name no number 
Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Off of traffics, Mr. Fantasy. Good, good. Go. All right, so rock in, at Rock in Chew on um, Twitter and Instagram. Also, you can like us on Facebook. Uh, and please leave us a review on iTunes as well. Um, that would that would help us out a lot. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing everybody for episode number 80. And uh, have a good night. Peace. <laughs>